looking back at Matthew chapter 14, you know, last week when we were talking about this, we spoke kind of of the introduction as to the situation you have here with Herod and John the Baptist. We talked about two main points in that. Number one being that it is the responsibility the commandment, the requirement, the expectation of the child of God in the kingdom of God to look to the kingdom of God first and foremost above all other things. Um, there is nothing else in this world that takes precedence. There is no political party. There is no political official. There is no whoever, wherever, whatever, that comes before the kingdom of God. Our allegiance is to the kingdom of God first, foremost, and always before anything else. Now, we spoke very briefly about being good citizens, and obviously we're engaged in civic duty. We don't relinquish that. We don't isolate ourselves and say, well, we are bound to a different kingdom. We're not, we're not citizens of this kingdom, this nation, this country. We spoke to that briefly, but we always made the point, you cannot allow the political makeup of whatever the country, kingdom, or nation that you're a part of ever take precedence over what we're called to be. We are a holy people, a holy nation. We are a nation. We are a kingdom. We are governed by a different set of principles. So we spoke to the fact that we cannot allow our holy kingdom calling to be sacrificed because of the political whims of today, okay? So it's not that you vote Republican because the Republican Party is the godly party. That is an erroneous and inconsistent statement, okay? Um, and you don't vote for de- the Democratic Party because they are the party of the devil, okay? That's just, those, those kind of things don't play into it. You still have to hold to account every leader, every person, no matter who they are a part of. I mean, and you don't make exceptions. It's not like, oh, well, this president's pro-life, but he has a completely immoral life, and therefore we vote for him just because he's pro-life. But then we kind of just forget about the fact that he's an adulterer and a fornicator and multiple divorces and, I mean, whatever it may be, or a robber, a murderer, a thief. You don't, we, we cannot sacrifice our kingdom principles for worldly principles. We cannot sacrifice our kingdom mindset for a worldly mindset and say and, and justify it by saying, oh, well, but they have this one amiable quality. That doesn't work. John here was addressing Herod and was addressing Herod about really a practice that at that point in time with those people, especially with Herod, who he was a king of or not a king, a ruler of the Jewish people. He wasn't Jewish. He was Canaanite. OK, he bought himself into this authority. All right. But all that being said. Even amongst him as a pagan, he was representing, okay, the Jewish people in this way. He was the leader of the Jewish people. And what John was holding him to task for was, hey, if you're representing our laws, if you are being the, the, the governor, the guardian of our laws, you've got to keep our laws. And our laws say that you can't just divorce your wife for any reason and marry, especially... Your brother's wife, who's still married to your brother? It doesn't work that way. So John calls him to task on that. And you say, well, John, that really wasn't advantageous for you. Really, why are you picking this fight? Hasn't, you know, hasn't uh, Herod Antipas done a lot of good things for the Jews here? 
Hasn't he done well in protecting, you know, the people here in Galilee? Aren't we commanded in Romans, you know, to honor the, the representatives who were put over us in civil governments and all that? I mean, why would you choose this fight with him? Because John was a preacher of righteousness in the kingdom of God. He was called to do that. And no matter Herod or anybody else, he wasn't going to shy away from. Paul carried on the same tradition when he's brought between uh, b- before King Agrippa, when he's brought before Felix, when he's brought before the emperor. It ne- he never sacrificed. He never said, oh, well, I expect you, Caesar, to not really be beholden to what God would have you to do because you're a pagan and an unbeliever. No, Paul was going to say, no, look, Caesar, this is how it is. This is the truth of God's word. This is what the kingdom of God is. When he stood before King Agrippa, he said, Agrippa, I want you to be fully persuaded of these things. So never in a time did it come up that it was like, oh, well, that person's just that person. Or, well, they've done some other good things, so let's not rock the boat. Let's not stir the pot. No, defenders of righteousness. And that's what we were talking about. We're in a spiritual warfare. And that spiritual warfare battles not only internal battles, but also the large spiritual battles, as it says in Ephesians, the, the spiritual wickedness in high places. So that's all of it all together. So we talked about that aspect of it. You know, we, we spoke briefly about the, the so-called belief of Herod. You know, we, we kind of reference the fact that Herod was more interested and more eager to hear and see what Jesus had to say. Just like he was with John the Baptist, he recognized John was a holy man. He recognized he was a prophet. He actually liked talking to John, okay? So all that being said, in all that, in all that situation, Herod was more in tune or more acceptable of Jesus and John the Baptist than Jesus' own people were in Nazareth, Okay? And we said, we got to be careful again. Like we said, we don't want to be outdone by the devils. James says that the devils believe and they tremble. Okay. We may say we believe, but then have really no fear of God, no real uh, trembling before him. Okay. We don't want to be outdone by the devils and we don't want to be outdone by pagan rulers in their following or listening or, or you know, we, that's the, the, the secular world should not be setting the standard for what is good, what is right and what is holy. And the secular world should not be beating us on being charitable, loving, compassionate people. That's the thing that I think gets us the most. You know, they can, they can rightly so put us up and go, man, you got all these secular organizations who by no unction of the spirit are doing a lot of compassionate, loving things in the world. And then people will look at a bunch of hard, mossy Christians who are sitting back in their beautiful pews and they're satisfied with themselves not doing a thing for other people and go, well, really, which one's the better situation? Why would I support a bunch of people who don't care about other people? So it's important for us not to fall into that trap. We should not be being outdone by people who are not representatives of our kingdom. Our kingdom is a kingdom that preaches and teaches that we have a people everywhere and that we are compassionate not only to our neighbors, but to our enemies. So we of all people should be excelling in that. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's what it means to be a representative of the kingdom. 
Let's look at another couple aspects of this chapter in verse four. I mean, in chapter 14, in verse six through nine, it says, but when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she being before instructed of her mother said, give me here, John the Baptist's head on a plate. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, for the oath's sake. And then which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought in a plate and given to the damsel. And she brought it to her mother. And the disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Now, what's so interesting about that is then what we kind of talked about last time. Um, when you look over in like Mark's account and other accounts of this, what you will find is that Herod and his relationship with John, the reason he had not already killed John was because he reverenced John. Okay. He looked at John as a holy man, not just that the people looked at him, but he actually looked at John as a holy man and a prophet. And also it says in Mark, I think was the other account we were looking at last time, he liked to talk with John. So that's why all this had been stayed. Herodias wanted him dead long before. So Herod now gets himself in a bind. What was the reason why Herod ultimately gave in? Why did Herod ultimately give in and kill John the Baptist after? I mean, he didn't want to. It says he was sorry that he, that he got himself into this situation. When you look at what is happening here with Herod, even with a guy that we would go, man, Herod is not a shining light of morality, okay? Even he can get himself into bad situations because of bad motivations, okay? And that's really what got him here. If you're talking about motivations, typically, you're going to be talking about motivations for like desires, job requirements, family, etc. Why do I do what I do? Why do I take the extra time to, you know, from a biblical standpoint, why do I take the extra time to discipline my children? Because the Bible will say that it will yield fruit from that. Okay? Same way that God disciplines us to yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. There's a reason behind it. There's a motivating factor behind that. Jesus says that he endured the cross. Why? Because the joy that was set before him on the other side of it. There was a motivating factor with that. We seek jobs because of motivating factors. Most of the people in this room who have jobs are in their jobs for a reason, right? Either it's I'm bored or it's I need benefits or it's I need money or I, rarely you'll get someone who says, I just like doing the work. Okay. I mean, you have those weirdos who are like retired, but they've worked 20 extra years in their same job. Oh, I just like doing it. Well, I mean, good on you, man, whatever. But most people have a motivating factor for that. There's a reason why they are doing it. Okay. And there are times that our motivations are for reputable reasons. Okay, all of those things we just listed out were pretty reputable reasons. And then there are times that they're not reputable reasons. There are motivations that we get that drag us into things that are not good reasons to do what we're doing. Okay. So in this situation, you can see how Herod has kind of gotten himself into trouble because he promised to this girl that he was going to do this. And as king, he was obligated to do it. It's a bad motivation, number one. But the situation, just in and of itself, you know, you might say, oh, well, that's not, you know, is it a bad thing to keep your obligations? You've promised to do something. 
You know, is it a bad thing to keep your promise? I mean, that's what is that the whole, you know, old southern idea that I'm a man of my word. If you shake my hand, I'll keep my promise, you know. So just like on the surface, you could say, well, it's not bad that Herod's wanting to keep his promises. Doesn't that make him an honest and trustworthy man? Say, yeah, accept Herod why you're doing it. Why are you keeping your promise? Why did you even make this promise with this girl? That really gets down to a problem. So when you look at why Herod was even doing this, why Herod even jumped on this train, decided that he was going to make this promise, is number one, you can just go ahead and assume that this party that he is having is not a low-key function, okay? There's probably some substance abuse going on here. Uh, Some things going on that's got him in a happy mood. Not to mention the fact that he's got this girl dancing for him, and I'm promising you she's not doing ballet, okay? So the root cause of all of this, the motivating factor of all of this was basically lust and debauchery. That's his motivator. That's what's motivated him and put him into this situation is lust, okay? Which I think we've talked before, especially on Wednesday night when we were going through Genesis, we talked about how lust ends up being like the oldest sin in the book, okay? Lust and lying are the two that go hand in hand and have been all the way back in the garden. That when at, when Eve looked at the fruit and she desired it, that desire word, the Hebrew for that word is the same word that means to lust after it. So she was lusting after that fruit. She looked at it and said, man, that looks good. And oh, won't it make me happy? And isn't this, haven't I been so unhappy to this point? You know, being an older perfection walking with God, haven't I been so unhappy? And this fruit is the one thing that's going to satisfy my soul in a way nobody else can. Well, here you have Herod who, again, you get into this weird situation. This is now your niece. Okay. So this is Herodias and Philip's daughter that you can assume from that. I've now taken my brother's wife, Herodias. This is her daughter, which, you know, a few days ago was my niece. And now my niece is my, yeah, stepdaughter at this point. And she's doing a little dance for me, which again, you just get on all these levels of, this is why this gets weird, right? This is why, again, this is a weird unnatural situation, which is why John was rebuking him in the very beginning. This is not to be done. There is a way that God has established, and then there's a way that man has established. And we know what the ends thereof are. So you see this kind of play out. You see how he is motivated by this lust. And I think we'd all agree that's a bad motivation. And beyond that, though, you even have Solomon writing in the Proverbs when he's writing to his son. He'll make a point about getting into agreements with people. So we talked about how just keeping your, you know, being, being a good, trustworthy person, keeping your obligations, that doesn't necessarily seem bad on the front, forefront. But Solomon wrote to his son in Proverbs chapter 6, and he made a point, it's really best you not get into obligating situations to begin with. Because there are times when those situations will drag you in a way that's ungodly, unholy, and against what you were commanded to do. Proverbs chapter 6, he'll say, My son, if thou be surety, or if you have been kind of obligated, if you've gone in as a promissory, you know, for thy friend, if thou hast struck your hands with a stranger, thou art ensnared with the words of thy mouth. Thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. 
Do this now, my son, and deliver thyself. When thou art come into the hand of thy friend, go, humble thyself and make sure thy friend, or make sure he's good, make sure his intentions are honest. Give not sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself as a roe from, or a deer from the hand of the hunter, and as a bird from the hand of the fowler. His, his encouragement to his son was, get out of the situation. Fulfill what you got to do. Make sure your friend's legit and on the up and up. Whatever you got to do, but get out of this situation quickly because it has a propensity to drag you into a situation you don't need to be in. Hey, buddy, I'll help you out with that. Okay, what are we doing? Well, I just need you to help me move a TV. Oh, that doesn't sound too bad after all. Oh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really let you know that this TV was in somebody else's house and we just happened to walk up in there and take it. You know what I mean? That's, that's what we're talking about here, making promises... That you don't necessarily want to keep. So instead, this is where Jesus would say, don't swear by anything greater. Don't swear by this. Don't make promises and oaths in that way. Instead, let your yeas be yea, your yeses be yeses, and your noes be noes. Keep everything legitimate, immediate, and on the front and up and up. Don't enter into little agreements with buddies. Don't let your, let your potential... Um, your, your potential name and reputation be drugged through the mud because you promised to do something and feel obligated to have to keep that. So there's that right off the forefront, but then there's also the bad motivations. Bad motivations, and, you know, when you look over in Galatians chapter 5, you will get a list of bad motivators, okay? It's a list of bad motivators for us. A list of what our fleshly ungodly, unholy natures will tell us is the best way forward. Okay? Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, or basically debaucherous living, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, emulations, wrath, anger, strife, heresies, Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like of the which I will tell you before, as I have also told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So he's making a point here in Galatians to say, this is where all this comes from. These are bad motivators that are present around us. This is what got Herod in trouble. You say, well, Herod was not a born-again, you know, child of God. I agreed, but even bad people are motivated by bad things. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 will say, From where come wars and fightings among you? Come they not even of your lusts that war in your members? You lust... And have not, or basically you lust after things that you do not have. You kill and desire to have, but cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not, because you ask not. You ask and receive not, because you ask amiss, that it may be consumed in upon your lusts. Again, he's going back to this circular thing of you are consumed by lust. Lust is your motivating factor. And from that lust, for whatever it is, whether it is a flesh, fleshly type lust, okay, or whether it's a lust after things. Eve's lust was after an apple, you know, if we're going to use that as the fruit that she was desiring, okay? 
So it doesn't necessarily mean something that you find on the internet late at night. It means desiring things that you do not have, thinking that those things are your source of joy and happiness. Well, my marriage isn't what it is, and so let me go find someone else that's going to fill this gap or void in my life, and that's going to make me happy. Well, I don't have this car, I don't have this money, I don't have this status, I don't have whatever. So I desire that, I want that, and think that's going to be my source of happiness, joy, fulfillment. And so I will sacrifice and kill everything on the way to get there. And from that comes wars, murder, fighting. I mean, that's, that's what you're looking at. So what is, what is Herod's motivating factors here? And what ultimately happened because of Herod? He was motivated by lust. Lust ultimately drove him to commit an obliga- into an obligation that ultimately led to the murder of John the Baptist. So we're getting a pattern here. Herod's motivated by lust and drunkenness, and that equals death. The works of the flesh equals death. The wages of sin equals death. The way that is right unto a man equals death. And so we see this play out over and over again. Now the next section of scripture, which I think again is very, it's very interesting how Matthew put these two together. Again, chronologically, you know, you don't know 100% every time if chronologically these all line up in exactly the same sequence, okay? There's times where they're bridged together. And we kind of talked about that with Matthew chapter 13 and 14. There's times where things are bridged together. And then there's times where things are kind of separated. And you can see maybe that wasn't just next day. Maybe that was next year, you know, kind of a deal. But here you have him go right in. And it says that after they went and told Jesus in verse 15, when Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them. And he healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said unto them, they need not depart, give you them to eat. And they said unto him, we have here but five loaves and two fishes. And he said, bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and breaked and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up the fragments and remained and that remained 12 baskets full. And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men beside women and children. Now, you have this story of bad motivations, And the destruction and death that it leads to with Herod and John the Baptist. Right after that, Jesus leaves, goes out into a desert to be alone. You know, that's... That was one of those things that he did often, especially when he got bad news or bad... I mean, he just... You know, he's tired. He wants to go be alone. Now, there's there's two arguments that are made from that. One is that... We need alone time, okay? We need time by ourselves with the Lord, and we need to go off sometimes and be by ourselves, go in the desert. I don't like the desert, so I'm going to say go to the mountains, um, something like that, okay? He did that too. I got biblical justification for that. So now every Gatlinburg trip is technically a ministerial opportunity. But in and, all, in and through all that, okay, he wanted to go be alone. Why? Well, because his cousin, John the Baptist, has, has just been killed. 
He wants to get away. I don't blame him. I mean, like, I want to get away from all y'all. Y'all leave me alone. Don't talk to me. You know, I don't get a good night's sleep and I'm like that, let alone have my cousin killed, you know. So here you have him wanting to get away. He says, I want to get away. I want to go. And, you know, you have all these nagging, whining, sick and lame people who just keep coming up to Jesus wanting some help. They heard of his fame. They sought after him on foot. So he got in a boat and went across the sea. They're chasing him around Galilee. And they finally catch up with him. And what would you expect? I mean, again, in our situations, we're tired. We're worn out. We have just heard our cousin has been killed. The last thing we want to do is deal with any more people. And here this multitude of 5,000 plus is gathered around him, begging them to continue to heal and help them. I think a lot of our situations would be like, look, guys, y'all got to take a rain check and come back tomorrow. I just had some bad news. I've had a rough day. I'm tired. I really just need y'all to back off. But what was Jesus' response? He was moved with compassion toward them and he healed their sick. So here Jesus has just left, I mean, dealt with this monumental, you know, loss in his life. And where all of us would say, you deserve some time off, Jesus is going, but, but, but my heart for these people, my heart for these sick people, my heart for these people who've chased me down on foot to this, you know, God-forsaken desert out here. I have compassion to move with them. What had they done for Jesus? Nothing. What were they going to do for Jesus? Nothing. In fact, after he heals them, he's got to feed them. I mean, this is like the worst house guests ever. I mean, you would hope that somebody coming in to crash your party like that, at least going to chip in. Hey, can you help me rake my yard? Can you do something? Can you help me clean up the dishes afterwards? Whatever it may be. No, these guys are like, hey, we're sick. Heal us. Oh, by the way, what are we going to do for food? And even the disciples were like, please just tell them to go. Tell them to go back to their cities. Jesus is like, no, my compassion doesn't stop with the healings. I still feel for them. I still want to provide for them. So let's read John's account if we can, can real quick. John in chapter 6 says it this way. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which, did, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he said unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that they, these may eat? And this he said to prove him or to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Okay? Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, There is a lad here with about five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Now I think it's really interesting that in both of these accounts they have made notice of the grass. Okay. Why that's important, I'm not sure, but there's grass there. I think that's pretty neat. Anyway, 
And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would, and they were filled. And he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered to themselves and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then the men rose and departed. So in both of these accounts, especially from John's account, you <laughs> you see him kind of providing for all of these people on two separate levels. One of them is, is he heals their sick. That was their most immediate desire when they came to him. We've heard of your healing of diseases. Here's a bunch of more diseased folks. Y'all come heal them, please. You know, there were no hospitals. There's no like... You know, this, I mean, Jesus is this miracle worker who you have a bunch of people who've been sick for a while. Man, let's just clean it out. Let's get everybody healthy. And what you notice, too, from John's account is that when Jesus is talking to Philip about this, what I think is so amazing is he says he asked Philip this so that he might test him. He knew what he was going to do. He knew what was about to happen. He knew what he was going to provide and how all this was going to shake out. But he asked Philip to kind of challenge Philip, prove Philip, test Philip. Okay, that language. And and what I'm really wanting to get at and want you to grab is there is some big time correlations between this and the children of Israel out in the desert after they left Egypt. Okay, huge implications with this. And we've been talking on Wednesday nights so much about how and, and trying to impress. There's one testament, okay? I know there's an old and a new. It testifies the same story. Jesus same yesterday, today, and forever, all right? It's still all about Jesus. The testimony of the Bible is Jesus from beginning to end. And so when you go back and you see some of these examples, you say, well, why is this scene so, so important? Why is this such a necessary thing to bring out about healing some people with some bread and some fishes? Is it just to show that Jesus is master over the created order and that he can make some things miraculously appear that weren't there? Is it something to help us so that when we eat a little bit at lunchtime, we feel more fuller than we should? Okay, I mean, whatever that is, more fuller, full, whatever it is. No, there's some connections here. There's some big connections. There was a previous time where a bunch of people from Israel were, were stranded out in a desert place. And God provided for them on three different occasions. And in those occasions, you will have him use the same language of, I did this to test you. Okay? I did this like with the manna. He said, I gave you the stipulations on the manna in Exodus chapter 16. He'll say, I gave you the stipulations on the manna to prove you to see who would obey my law and who would not. Remember, we talked about this when we were going through the book of Exodus. But the second thing is that Jesus has a history with the Jews and providing them food and water in wilderness places. Okay. So this is a beautiful tie-in from Old Testament to New. If you look back at Exodus chapter 15, you have the bitter waters of Mara. And you have where God cut down the trees. We got sweet waters, okay? Exodus chapter 16, you have the manna and the quail that was provided. Exodus chapter 17, you have water coming from a rock. You have the, the children of Israel out in desert places with no sustenance. And God magnificently provides sustenance out of nowhere, out of nothing. 
in 1 Corinthians, you'll see where Paul will say that all of that stuff in those three chapters, they all ate of the spiritual food, they all drank of the spiritual water, they all were baptized in the Red Sea and under the cloud of pillar of fire and, and smoke and all this. They were all part of that and that Jesus was that rock that went with them through the desert and provided for them while they were in the desert. And the children of Israel ate quail, manna, and drank water like that for 40 years in the wilderness. So now when you fast forward and you see where Christ now is sitting again physically in a desert place with a bunch of Israelites giving them food, well, now you go, oh, this is like deja vu. Only a few thousand years apart. Christ is, I think, in this time bringing home the spiritual implications that he is the fulfillment of everything you were searching for in the Old Testament. Like he tells the Pharisees, you go search the scriptures. Go search them. In them, you think you have eternal life. And I'm telling you, they testify of me. Who was that rock? I'm the rock. Who was the manna? I'm the manna. You say Moses gave me bread. I'm telling you, I'm the bread. You say that you want some living water out of a rock. I'm telling you, I was the rock and I'm the living water. And I'll give you, I mean, he just goes on and on to say, this is all me, guys. Let's end the, let's end the confusion. Let me give you, instead of worshiping a serpent up on a brazen pole, why don't you worship me? I am that representation of the serpent up on a brazen, or the brazen serpent up on a pole. That's what he tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Just like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And all who look on him and believe will be saved. All of this, he keeps going, this is all me. It's all my story. You've been reading it for a thousand years and it's all about me. So let's all sit down on the grass and let's eat a meal that I'm going to magically provide for you. We're going to sit down, we're going to eat. And I hope what's going to stick in your brain is that it's not just that I can do these miracles. It's not just that I can touch people and leprosy goes away and lame men walk and blind men see and deaf men hear and all this stuff. I'm giving you the very sustenance of life. And I always have been. I have been everything to you, Israelites. I have been everything to you. I have been the very, I've been in your very presence from your inception When you walked out of Egypt, I was there. I was the pillar leading you. I was the rock sustaining you. I was the food filling you. Now, the sad thing is, how many times did the children of Israel murmur and complain about that sustenance? So it shouldn't surprise us then. That when you see Jesus go in there and say these things to some of these Jewish people, these religious elite, these Pharisees who know it all. That when he goes in and saying, they're like, oh, we don't want anything to do with you. We don't want that light bread. That water's bitter. Man, think about how we had it in Egypt. But this continues. This keeps with what I'm describing as that continuity model from the Old Testament to the New. There is just one Testament. There's one story. It's the same story about Jesus. And I think it's so awesome to see these two set apart like this. To see what you saw in Exodus 15 and 16 and 17. And what you see here in Matthew 14. This picture of him sitting down with people. Again, I don't think I have ever caught from this story of feeding the 5,000 this same kind of implication. 
But now that I see it, it's like I can't, I can't get it out of my head how beautiful it is of those two being tied together. Like Jesus is going, hey, look, we've done this before. Don't you remember this? We did this for 40 years, guys. You didn't see me. I was a rock. But, you know, we did this. Look at how I provide for you. So it brings out the fact that Jesus is the source of sustenance, both spiritually and physically, and has been kind of for, for all the mankind that has transversed those years. That's, that's where he's been. He's been this way throughout history. It also circles back to what Christ was teaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 when he says, Hey, I feed the sparrows. Don't I feed you? I care for the ravens. Don't I care for you? I clothe the lilies of the valley. Don't I clothe you? Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be taken care of. This is what I do, people. I've been doing this for you. Rewind back to Exodus. I've been doing this for you. And I think it's interesting, too, and a tie-in, and I hope, you know, follow me with this. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, and Jesus' words to Satan in closing were that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, take that, and remember that we call Jesus the Word. Jesus is the Word of God. He was the Word that spoke the world into existence. And we are living off that word, not only spiritually, but in these cases, we've been living off the word naturally. That he has been our provider of sustenance. I just think that's, there's so much in that that we don't even have time to get into it. But look at the better motivation here. We have the bad motivations of lust and what came from it. Here you have Jesus. And what motivated Jesus to do what he did? Compassion. He was moved with compassion. He was overwhelmed with compassion. He had that weird little feeling in your stomach and chest when something kind of gets you moved and stirred up that moved him to do what he did. He was moved with compassion for them. And he healed their sick and then he ultimately fed their needs. So you have with Herod... His motivation being lust and drunken obligations that ultimately lead to a death sentence placed on John. And I think it's not an extreme situation. It's something that you could say throughout history, lust and drunkenness have led to destruction for thousands of years. But then you also have Jesus being motivated by compassion and through this compassion you had this herd of people that were touched by God. When you look at Philippians chapter 2, and this kind of goes with what we've been talking about on Wednesday night about holiness. And I, I fully intend, hopefully, to come up with a booklet that's going to have like a one, two, three, step by step. You know, because we've been talking at it for the past two or three weeks. And we've been talking about what it looks like to live holy, what it looks like to be holy, what actions fall under holy actions. And so with my mind and the way that I think, I need some kind of like, I need some kind of outline, okay? I need something to say, well, these are your three actions, and this is how you implement them, and, you know, and usually a good app to remind me to do it, and that usually helps. But here, though, when we're talking about this, we're talking about Christ's motivating factors and how it moved Christ to do a good thing, okay? We have to internalize motivating factors that are of the Holy Spirit that should then move us to do a good thing. 
James speaks of this. There is such a thing called dead faith. It's faith where someone says they believe they don't do anything with it. And he said, faith is to be living, it's to be alive. And it should motivate you. It's not to be, I say, go be warmed and filled. No, it's that you get your jacket and you put it on the poor person. Faith without works is dead. Here he says in Philippians chapter 2, if there be therefore any, con- consu- mm-hmm. any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion or bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. That mind is Christ's mind. Which means when you see Christ here move with compassion on a people, our mind should be the same to move with compassion on people. Let nothing be done through strife and vainglory or lust. That's another bad motivator. But in lowliness of mind, in humbleness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Again, Christ would say, I came to be a servant, not to serve. Not to be served, sorry. I came to be a servant, not to be served. Think of others higher than yourself and better than yourself. Do for others more than for yourself. That's called selflessness, which is the opposite of selfishness, okay? Look not every man on his own things, selfishness, but every man also on the things of others, selflessness. Or another way of saying that would be everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And in the previous verse, basically, that you should esteem the interests of others above your own. That it's not like I'll get around to it if I'm done with my stuff. No, it's I'll do your stuff first and then I'll come to my stuff. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. Adopt the same attitude that Christ has, who being in the form of godliness, thought or form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Basically saying that he was in the form of God. He could have been in the form of God as in coming down here in deity fashion. But instead, he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. I came To serve, not to be served. And was made in the likeness of men. And being found in in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself. And became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The mindset that we are to take on, the Christian mindset is one of humbleness, humility, of selflessness, of compassion to others, of esteeming others above yourself. And all of those are the mind that Christ had. And that's what we see here. This is the mind to have. When Christ does these things, we don't look at him and go, oh, look how great Christ was. He was. But then he says, have the same mind. Do these same things. This is what my kingdom is about. So we have better motivating factors with this. These should be the things that motivate us. The mind that Christ had should motivate us to do good works. It should compel us and impel us, okay, to do good works, to do these things and to act in a compassionate way. And you say, well, that's all a lot of tough stuff. And I agree with you. But here's the thing. It is not too hard for Christ. It's not too hard for the Holy Spirit. 
If you think somehow you're not able to get over your own whatever, I guarantee you it can be done because it's been done throughout history. Christ has very supernaturally and sovereignly overridden everyone's nature. Okay? Our nature to be selfish and to be wrathful. All born-again children of God have had an immediate makeover. So it's not impossible. Paul was a murderer and a desirous person of killing the church. And in one moment on the road, his life was changed instantaneously. So there is nothing that we look at and go, oh, it's just too hard. I'm not a compassionate person. I'm more of an introvert. I'm whatever. You are doubting the power of the Holy Spirit. You're saying, God, that my emotional status is too big for you to be able to overcome. I just don't have a compassionate heart. We'll get on your knees and pray for one. Because it's not an option. It's not you can do this if you want to be an A-list Christian, as we've said that over and over again. These are things that are commanded for us to do. You cannot claim to be a Christian and not have the mind of Christ. You can't have the mind of the devil and say, oh yeah, but I'm a Christian. No, you're not. You have to actually think and do like Christ does. That's what the whole word means. So if Christ is motivated by compassion, we have to be motivated by compassion. So I want us all to look for Christ. And this this circles back around. Look to Christ as that sustainer. The one who provides our sustenance both spiritually and physically. If he is the one that is supporting us and holding us up, then having compassion on people should not be a hard thing. We've got the source of it right there. We're being fed off of that. Our love for our enemies and our neighbors, that shouldn't be a hard thing. We're being fed off of that. If Christ is where we're getting our sustenance from, and we're eating on that, eating on the Word of God, then these things aren't hard things. But we may need to make sure we are being ruled by better motivations. The motivations that we have, the motivating factors that we have in the Word of God here, they are the greatest things in the world. They're the things that everybody wants. Who has ever said, no, I'm okay, I don't want any more peace? I I like a little disruption and unrest in my life. I think this weekend and this month have been a testimony that there's no such thing as I'm okay with unrest. All right. We're all going, please, for the love of God, give me peace. Okay. How about joy? How many people are like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm already happy enough. You know, I think I'm actually too happy. Make me miserable. I don't like my life being this joyful. Nobody says that. Peace, love, joy. I mean, there was people who got high on drugs for a whole generation just to try to get these things. So people desire this. And what we claim and what we have a claim on is that we have been filled with these things. These are our motivating factors. So from that point of view, we need to leverage that. Say, well, if I have been blessed to receive these things, then I am to be a blessing to everyone around me. If I have been blessed with grace, then I should be showing more grace than anybody. 
No pagan unbeliever, no whoever, no whatever king in authority, no uh, you know secular institution should ever outdo me on grace. Okay, they have not tasted of it like I have. They should never outdo me on joy. They don't know what real joy is. And they most certainly should never outdo me on love because I've known the greatest love there ever was. So may God bless us to help us in this, to work on this, to pray towards this in this week. That we'd be more compassionate, that we'd have the mind of Christ. That Christ would constantly, just every day when you get up and you start driving to work or going to school or dealing with kids or whatever, just pray, say, Lord, I need you to give me your mind for today. I need you to work on my mind and put it to the back and I need your mind to be in my front. I need you to make my heart a compassionate heart today. A patient heart, a loving heart, a heart that has a desire to see and do good for others besides myself. So God bless us to work on.